Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning for those of you not in the Eastern time zone. My name is Jeff Singer. I practice general surgery in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in the Department of Health Policy Studies. The COVID-19 pandemic made state and federal lawmakers acutely aware of how state-based regulation of clinicians contributes to the overall shortage of healthcare providers and obstructs their rapid response to public health emergencies. Governors tacitly acknowledged this when they issued executive actions temporarily suspending most of these regulations, such as the barriers that prevent licensed healthcare practitioners from practicing across state lines. State medical licensing laws also block a large pool of experienced and motivated healthcare practitioners from other countries who are eager to come here and willing to provide care to underserved communities in poor and remote areas of this country. International medical graduates, or IMGs, who just graduated from one of the many foreign medical schools that are approved by the U.S. Educational Commission on Foreign Medical Graduates, called ECFMG, providing they're able to score a visa, can go through a postgraduate residency program in the United States, take the standard U.S. medical licensing exam that all U.S. graduates take, and are then granted licenses to practice in every state in the United States plus the District of Columbia. However, some states require that IMGs take a couple of more years of residency training than graduates of U.S. medical schools before they grant them licenses. But suppose an international medical graduate has completed a postgraduate residency in another country and is an experienced licensed practitioner in that country who wishes to migrate to the U.S. to practice here. That doctor has to start from scratch, complete the entire postgraduate residency training program, usually three to five years, before being granted a license in the U.S. Imagine, ha imagine having to start all over again after years of education and experience, and perhaps with a family to support, in order to provide care to patients in the United States. That's why so many immigrant doctors are working as orderlies in hospitals or as technicians, or waiting tables or driving taxis, when they could be delivering care to American patients. We have with us this afternoon a, a doctor who went through just such an experience and now is a prominent and respected cancer specialist in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Mac Halapoda is the director and managing partner of Palo Verde Cancer Center in Scottsdale. We're also fortunate to have with us today Paul L. Larkin Jr., Senior Legal Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. One of his fields of research is occupational licensing. He's written several articles on that subject, two of which were published at the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy one called Public Choice Theory and Occupational Licensing, and the other Reforming American Medical Licensure. Paul served as an assistant to the Solicitor General at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he argued 27 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He was also counsel to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Orrin Hatch. And then finally, we're joined by Cato's own Alex Narasta, Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Alex received his undergraduate degree in economics at George Mason University and a master's of science in economic history at the London School of Economics. After we have heard from our speakers, we'll have a Q&A, and I welcome viewers to submit questions via the event webpage or via Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. Please use the hashtag Cato Health. That's capital C, capital H, hashtag Cato Health. You can also visit the event page to access additional materials associated with this event and to view the video that you just saw that preceded this event. Let's start by hearing from Makbul Halapoda. Makbul, after you graduated medical school in your native Pakistan, you completed your residency at the prestigious Jinnah Postgraduate Medical Center and became a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation also known as physiatry, treating such things as spinal cord injuries, stroke victims, and other neuromuscular and skeletal disorders. And you supervise the only artificial limb fitting institute serving Pakistan and neighboring countries. You also taught at your med school alma mater. Yet when you wanted to practice here in the US, you were met by many obstacles. So please tell everyone your story. So thank you very much, Jeff, for uh, inviting me to speak. Uh, so yes, I did graduate in Pakistan, and I my there I was going to become a physiatrist. Uh, I trained in that, and then I think it was in the early 90s that there was a Supreme Court rule, which limited the hours for residents working here in the U.S. residency programs, and there was uh, almost uh, you know floodgates were open for because they needed 
residents from abroad to fill in the slots in the residency programs. So I, along with uh, some of my friends, decided, okay, we're going to try our, our luck in the in the U.S. Actually, before that, I wanted to go to U.K., where, you know, because Pakistan is a, most of the medical schools in Pakistan are, are, are designed according to the old British, you know, medical system. And my elder brothers were at, uh, were working in England. But one of my brothers, who was a GP in England, then just told me that the U.S. was the future for medicine. So, um, so then, uh, you know, we, we decided, we said, we'll go to the U.S. So I came to New York, uh, and there were four of us, four, uh, you know, friends who had been friends all, you know, all our lives. We had, we had medical, gone to medical school together, and we got a, we rented an apartment on Coney Island Avenue. And I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It's it's a very uh, it's it's a very old uh, neighborhood uh, in in Brooklyn, mostly very traditional, you know, uh, Jewish area. Uh, and there were four of us, you know, renting an apartment. We we actually didn't even have furniture. We would sleep on the floor, and and you know our the, the our landlord, uh, you know, was always very kind to us. They would they would help us, give us you know whenever they cooked something, would give us food. Would you know it was. It was so it's and then but we were here we're taking our exams and we had to struggle through to you know working at some uh, odd jobs the laundromats and stuff uh, and my goal was to go back to, into 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 physical medicine and rehab uh, uh, at that time but uh, but it was very difficult for people uh, for me to actually uh, get into physical medicine rehab directly because i did not have any i was not a local graduate i uh, you know, I did not have any physical medicine rehab experience. So I, you know, I had to go into internal medicine. I did a year of internal medicine. And uh, then as, you know, life would take you, I decided to finish off. Initially, my goal was to do one year of internal medicine and then go back into rehab. But after working in internal medicine, I stayed in internal medicine. Uh, and then I actually, for my, I did my internship in New York, and then I, I moved to Kentucky at the University of Kentucky, where I did my my second and third year of internal medicine, and but because I was on a visa, then I had to go and work uh, in what was defined in a county which where they did not have enough local graduates, which is called an underserved uh, you know area. Then I worked in a small town called Berea, Kentucky, which is about a ten thousand population in the middle of Appalachia. Um, so uh, after doing my residency. That was a time when one of my nieces, who was about four years old, got diagnosed with ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and she was being treated at St. Jude's. Uh, uh, and I got involved into oncology, and that's what led me into oncology. Uh, so, so this was kind of a you know a pull and and a push in a way. I I got pulled into oncology, but I kind of got pushed out of you know physical medicine rehab, where I spent about four years after you know of training in Pakistan, as you, as, as you mentioned, you know working in a in the only uh, shop or institute that that provided artificial limbs. We also did our own, you know, nerve conductions and 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 uh, electromyographies, help people with strokes. So I kind of had to do a shift from where I had invested about four years of my training. Uh, and in between, before coming to the U.S., I had also uh, because this is when you know I I was going to take my step one. So I had to go back and 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 uh, refresh my basic, uh, you know, sciences. So I worked as a, as a lecturer in in the department of anatomy in my alma mater. So I, you know, it's kind of uh, in order to pass the exams and get into the into the system in U.S. I had to kind of take so many steps back that it i feel like you know between uh, me having to go back to 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 uh, to refresh my basic uh, medical sciences and teaching anatomy uh, and then having to go through internal medicine and and getting a j1 work in an underserved area for a j1 visa i feel on the average i lost almost um, if, you know maybe half a, a decade of my life 
trying to to gain back. Now, eventually, uh, I I don't have any any I don't have any regrets because I think it paid off. Uh, but I feel like you know the, the 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 training of a physician is probably one of the most uh, precious resources that are available to any country, any society in the world. And when we have so many you know foreign graduates who are willing to come to the U.S. to 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 give their services, I think it's a it's a resource that can be much better utilized if, on the average, we did not make these uh, these physicians who come from overseas uh, literally waste a half or a full decade of their life just to get into the system here. So, so you know, if you talk to any foreign graduate, they'll all tell you that they have had to take make compromises, take some detours in their life, and a lot of time change their, uh, you know, their, their the basic specialties that they wanted to train in originally, and sometimes it's, it's it's maybe for for the good, but but they have to do that, and then what that means is that their years of training in the in the specialty that they had started with are 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 are, are wasted. Uh, so so I think the idea is that that this whole system needs to be streamlined where we can, instead of wasting all these resources, we should do a, have a better system where we can utilize those for the, for, the, for, the, for the betterment of our own people in this country who are in dire need of, of medical specialists and physicians you know, in, in general. There are so many uh, people talk about you know, uh, areas that are, that are deficient, uh, are, are, have a lack of, of physicians. I work in North Scottsdale, which is one of the most, uh, you know, uh, fluent affluent areas in, in the country. The average houses here are in millions, but I have patients that come to me every day, and and they cannot find a primary care physician, or they it, they cannot get into a specialist that they need for weeks at a time. So now imagine how much worse the situation would be in in a rural county, you know where the, the even the local graduates don't want to go to. So so that's kind of my background. You know, there in Canada and in a lot of the developed countries, they have a totally different approach to uh, international medical graduates who want to practice in their country. I know in Canada, uh, just like in the United States, the provinces there have control over licensing. Uh, and uh, virtually all the provinces, what they'll do is if if you're a physician from a list of 29 countries that uh, their uh, council on medicine approves, uh, then basically when if you want to get a license in the province, uh, you just take the same exam that any other Canadian doctor has to take. And then you you're good to go. And if and some some of the provinces have what they call a provisional license, where you're you're supervised by uh, a physician in the same specialty for a designated period of time, who then certifies in writing that you are competent, and then you are independent and can practice. Uh, Nova Scotia will even take people who aren't from those 29 countries, providing that after they've been approved by the supervisor, um, they they agree to practice at least three years in an underserved area in primary medicine. Uh, but uh, Paul, you've written a lot about this. This is an area that you spent a lot of time researching and you had two recent uh, articles about the way they handle this in other countries, particularly in Australia. Uh, in Australia, one was recently published in the Harvard Law Review and one in the Washington and Lee University Law Review. And I would like uh, you to tell us what you know about this. Well, thank you for the opportunity to appear. I'm honored that you asked me, and I appreciate also the people who have called in to devote this part of their time for this subject. It's an important one, and let me sort of lay out some of the framework and the background for it. There are three different governments that regulate the delivery of medical services in the United States. The federal government regulates the pharmacy through the Food and Drug Administration. Cities, counties, 
and other local governments decide where and how big the different facilities can be. The big problem we're talking about today is one that falls within the bailiwick of the states. They decide who can practice medicine, system of occupational licensing. Now, the states have regulated the practice of medicine since late in the 19th century. By that point, more than half the states had required a license to practice medicine, and the Supreme Court upheld those rules in 1889 in a case called Dent versus West Virginia. Most licensing requirements are justified on the ground that they are designed to protect consumers from information asymmetry, particularly in areas providing services. The average person doesn't have the skill to decide whether A is qualified or is better than provider B. So the government requires a license in order to do this. Generally, however, most licensing requirements are really just designed to establish cart incumbents against competition. Now, medicine is an exception to that because generally we think it's reasonable to require somebody to be licensed in order to diagnose disease, prescribe medication, or perform surgery. The problem is, and as you just heard from Dr. Halapoda, sometimes the licensing requirements go too far. And just as too much of a good medicine can be bad for your health, too much licensing can be bad for social health. We have that problem now because it has artificially constrained the number of physicians who can practice either in general medicine categories or in specialties or even subspecialties. Part of the problem is that Congress and the states have not funded adequate residency slots for graduates of domestic medical schools. But part of the problem is also we've made it very difficult for educated and trained foreign physicians to come to the United States where they can practice their trade for the betterment of the community. Now, you've heard from Dr. Halapota how it works in his particular case, at least how it worked. And you will hear from my, my colleague, uh, Alex Narasta, about how the immigration problem uh, has It appears uh, that we're having some technical problems. It looks like uh, we're having some technical problems. So hopefully we can get Paul back. Uh, in the meantime, uh, well, if, let's see if we can get him back. I'm gonna go to Alex while, while we try to get him back. Um, so uh, is Paul back now? No. Uh, all right, so Alex, Alex Narasta, you know, no, no discussion of this could take place without touching upon immigration policy. Even if the states reform licensing laws to allow for greater acceptance of international medical graduates, we still have the matter of getting them visas. So I'd like you to talk about how immigration policy plays into this. Sure. It's, it's, uh, thank you for having me, Jeff. Uh, and I hope that Paul is able to come back soon. I will, uh, you know, step out of my discussion to let him back in if, if and when he returns. Uh, it's important to step back from this and sort of talk about what the foreign-born impact of, of uh, immigrants on U.S. medicine is uh, before talking about the specific visas. Um, so first, uh, just over about 17% of all medical personnel in the United States are foreign-born while only 16% of the population who are adults are actually foreign born. So they're slightly overrepresented in all medical professions. But then when you take a look at the most skilled professions, that is those of us surgeons and physicians, 28% uh, of them are foreign born compared to just 16% of the adult population in the United States. So they're just under twice as likely to be um, um, uh, uh, just under twice as likely to be uh, foreign-born people are just under twice as likely to be uh, practicing in the United States than their percentage of the population would suggest. And what we see is that this is the case in every state in the United States, with the exception of Alaska and Wyoming. Uh, but those exceptions are likely due to census or a, a current population survey counting problems. So it's even likely if and when we uh, get better data for those states. We'll see that foreign-born uh, physicians and surgeons are even overrepresented there. Now, given the regulatory barriers that prevent surgeons and physicians 
from practicing in the United States. Uh, these are extraordinarily high rates um, of them practicing these professions. And there are only just a handful of visa programs that allow physicians and surgeons to practice in the United States. Uh, the most famous one is the J-1 exchange visa. Now, this visa allows foreign medical graduates to complete their residencies in the United States with the understanding that they will return to home countries and not apply for a visa to return for at least two years. So yeah, you heard that correctly. It's the idea that these foreign trained medical graduates will do their residencies here. And in the meantime, while doing that, of course, increase the supply of healthcare. But then by the time they have their residencies complete, they have years of training, years of experience. We make them go back to their home country and they can't apply for another visa for two years. Now there is an exception to this called the Conrad 30 program. And this exception is a waiver that allows some of these medical, these foreign trained doctors uh, to be able to stay in the United States on a J-1 visa if they commit to practice in a federally designated uh, health professional shortage area or a medically underserved area for at least three years. Um, this visa, though, only gives each state 30 waivers, regardless of the size of the population or the demand uh, for medical personnel in these states. What is uh, interesting is that the state basically has to go through and work with local medical providers in order to sponsor these folks to come or to continue to stay in the United States and provide medical care. Now, the numbers of physicians in underserved areas and the J-1 visa actually exceeds that of the number supplied through domestic programs like the National Health Service Corps, which is a domestic program that encourages physicians to go to underserved areas. So since about the year 2000, the J-1 visa has actually filled more of these slots in underserved areas in the United States than uh, domestic programs that intend to uh, push doctors to these areas. Now, what's even even so, though, the J-1 program is not the easiest program in the world for states and local medical providers to use. The state of Mississippi, which is usually the state with the most underserved, largest underserved population in terms of medical care, uh, typically underuses the Conrad 30 program. So in 2016, 17, and 18, Mississippi only used uh, 7, 8, and 5, respectively, of the 30 available annual slots. So over those years, uh, Mississippi could have gotten visas for 70 additional immigrant physicians uh, to come to uh, Mississippi to practice. So there's really no good reason for Mississippi to not have welcomed these people during this time, except there are like high barriers for state personnel who don't understand uh, 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 in lot, a lot of times their ability to get more foreign physicians as well as local medical providers who think that there is a lot of high regulatory barriers to, to using these programs to hire the physicians that they demand. Even so, it's not just, of course, physicians that work on the health of the body that these uh, visas go to, but also those who work in uh, mental health, you know, psychiatrists, uh, for instance, also are in high demand in a lot of these states. Um, the other visa, of course, in addition to the J-1 is the H-1B visa. Uh, doctors can be sponsored on the H-1B visa, and oftentimes a, a doctor working on the J-1 will then be transferred to an H-1B visa in the United States through what's called an adjustment of status. Now, the H-1B visa is a three-year, once-renewable, due-intent visa, um, but it is limited to 85,000 people per year working at for-profit firms in the United States. And it's not, of course, just for medical professionals. It is mostly used by high technology firms uh, and specifically to hire workers working in the STEM fields. That is science, technology, engineering, uh, and mathematics. And typically those firms do pay more than starting physicians in the United States for their employees. Um, and as a result, they also have a lot more of an interest. They file more slots for these physicians that come over. And because I'm um, for these workers to come over and because a lot of the workers in these high tech fields don't need to go through residency programs, nothing like that exists, for instance, for being an electrical engineer in the United States. It just makes a lot of sense for firms to hire them, hire engineers, for instance, rather than medical professionals, because they don't have to go through years of extra training. 
The other program, of course, is the employment-based green card system. Uh, the employment-based green card is for uh, mostly high-skilled professionals in the United States to be sponsored by American firms. Uh, on paper, the number is 140,000, but in reality, fewer than 70,000 workers get sponsored every year, and the other 70,000 go to their family members. Now, if you want to think about how this works, like in a supply chain, which is one of the great buzzwords of this COVID-19 era, we have a lot of foreign medical professionals who are trained overseas come in on J-1. They do a lot of their residencies. Some of them are able to get into the J-1 uh, Conrad 30 program to be able to stay longer, fulfill their residencies, become a doctor serving underfunded areas. Some of them are then able to get sponsored by an H-1B visa. They are on this visa usually for three to six years, depending on the country where they're from, they can usually get sponsored for an H-1B visa. Uh, and then after five years of being here on an employment-based visa, employment-based green card, they can then become a citizen. So you're talking about 15 to 20 years of immigration limbo from the point where they enter the United States and start their residency to when they become a citizen in the United States. Now, COVID-19 has exposed, I think, a lot of problems in public policy in the United States. Uh, but one of the areas where it's exposed the biggest is in the uh, healthcare profession. And now we've actually seen some movement on this in terms of trying to increase in the short run the supply of medical professionals uh, through immigration. So uh, Senators Purdue, Durbin, Young, and Coons who are all uh, you know, half Republicans, half Democrats, introduced the Healthcare Workforce Resilience Act, uh, which would have uh, recaptured uh, 40,000 visas, 40,000 green cards uh, for doctors and nurses in the United States to try to make sure that they get fast-tracked into this program. Um, it's been introduced in the House, but it has not become law yet. Um, but it has also taken account that a lot of these problems with visas, with the no low number of doctors coming to the United States through these programs, there's sort of a chicken and egg problem. One of the, you know, the immigration barriers are high, uh, but then the state and federal barriers to actually becoming a licensed physician are also high. So if we want to reduce or increase the supply of physicians, foreign trained doctors in the United States, we really have to attack both of these problems, uh, but doing attacking one of them is better than attacking neither of them. So if we can reduce the immigration barriers, we can absolutely increase the supply of medical professionals and the supply of doctors and physicians in the United States. But we also need to take a look on the state and local level and federal level for the restrictions on actually becoming a physician and sort of reducing those burdens. And in order to get really the benefit of liberalized immigration for medical professionals, we really also need to reduce a lot of these um, state level regulations as well, which is fairly unique when we talk about uh, immigration and any occupation in the United States where the state level really plays a large role. So um, uh, thank you, Jeff. And I look forward to uh, taking uh, any questions that the audience might have. Uh Thank you, Alex. It looks like we got Paul back. I know there's been a lot of problem in parts of the Northeast with blackouts. So I hope that didn't affect you, Paul, but you, welcome back. Um, so you were just getting started. You. <laughs> you were just getting started talking about okay. other countries deal with, deal with uh, in, international medical graduates who wish to emigrate there. Sure. Um, You've already heard from uh, Dr. Halapoda about his individual journey to get into the U.S. and then to practice. And you've heard from Alex uh, Narasta about the need to get people in here. Well, getting them into the United States is only part of it. You have the middle stage, which is getting a license from a state. States govern the licensing process for physicians through occupational licensing laws. They have for more than 100 years now, and the Supreme Court has approved them. The problem is, as you heard from uh, Dr. Halapoda, sometimes what these law laws do is prevent someone who is fully qualified from coming in and being able to practice. I mean, think about it for a minute. If Dr. Michael DeBakey had decided he wanted to go practice in a foreign country for a few years, it's a little difficult to think that he wasn't qual uh, qualified in the area of cardiology. And it'd be kind of difficult to believe that any 
any foreign nation would say he had to go back and do a residency in that in order to practice in it. Be that as it may, uh, we unfortunately have that problem here in the U.S., but several foreign nations have tried to uh, develop a workaround so that the physicians who go there from other countries don't have the same problems. You heard already from Dr. Singer about Canada, so I won't repeat what he said. But let me talk about what Australia has decided to do. It has a very different system uh, than what we have here uh, in being uh, able to give foreign educated and trained professionals a greater opportunity to come in and practice medicine without restarting the education that Dr. Halapota said he needed to engage in. If you come to Australia from a foreign country you, and you have graduated from an approved medical school and you are, have been licensed to practice medicine in that foreign country and you pass the qualifying exam that every other physician has to pass in Australia, you can enter into what is a limited supervision program, limited in terms of time. It doesn't go on like apprenticeships did in the United States or indentured servitude for seven years. It goes on only for six to 12 months and it takes place at one of four different levels. They start with essentially complete control by an already licensed physician in Australia. It then moves to the situation where at level two, you have a equal sharing of patient responsibility. At level three, the foreign physician becomes essentially the primary care physician. And at level four, the foreign physician is essentially able to take complete control of patient care with only oversight and more limited supervision by an Australian physician. This allows people to hire process or allows them to come in at different levels in that process and learn exactly how medicine is uh, performed in Australia. In other words, what sort of drugs and equipment they have, what the expectations are of uh, hospitals, the uh, medical societies, uh, patients and the like that may differ depending on where they came from, and yet still not feel that they are being denigrated in being forced to do the same sort of scut work that medical students have to do before they even graduate and get their MD. So you have a more liberal system in, in Australia, and it's one that Congress should give definite consideration to. In the very short run, what Congress could do is put aside a certain amount of money uh, for an institution like the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins uh, to study ways of increasing the supply of physicians in this country. Uh, there are different ways it can be done, uh, one of which is to increase the number of foreign physicians eligible to enter into care here, but then there's also telemedicine opportunities. There's the opportunity to uh, grant provisional licenses uh, to recently graduated medical students or to increase the responsibilities that physicians, assistants, paramedics, and former military medics and corpsmen can engage in as well as registered nurses. But we need to increase the supply. Why is that? Because we could find the perfect solution to financing the problem of providing adequate medical care. But if we don't have an adequate number of qualified people to actually provide that care, then you won't wind up with an improvement for the health of the individuals who need it or for the, the social regions in which they're practicing. So what does that mean? The bottom line is this, we need to focus on the provision of health care, not just from the financial perspective, but from the perspective of supplying an adequate number of people. It is reasonable to require uh, education, training, and experience, as well as satisfaction of certain licensing exams before someone is completely free to engage in medical practice. But it is too difficult at times to get an adequate number of people under the current state of the laws. Congress needs to re-examine them and, for example, make it uh, a more streamlined process for licensed uh, physicians in foreign countries to come to the United States and obtain a license here. Only by doing that will we be able to address the dire need we have for physicians right now to address the problem of the pandemic and to address all the other problems that haven't gone we're dealing with. It is very reasonable to try to do that through 
streamlining the entry process for foreign educated, foreign trained and foreign licensed physicians. Thank you and I'm glad to answer any questions. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, I just wanna add a little bit to tack on to what you said. Um, most of the countries in the European Union also have similar uh, arrangements to that either in Canada or, or Australia, one, you know, to varying variations, but all basically on the same concept. Some countries like uh, Denmark, for example, requires uh, immigrant doctors to pass a language proficiency exam uh, and to take a short course familiarizing themselves with the health laws of Denmark uh, before granting them a license. But generally speaking, uh, they all follow similar approaches, except the United States. The only country in the EU that has uh, an approach similar to the United States is France. They're, they're very close to the way we do things. Um, we're going to take questions now. And I, again, remind people that you could, if you, you could ask questions on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook using the hashtag Cato Health or directly on our event page. I see a recurring theme among the, some of the questions that I've gotten. So I'm going to go to that one first. Uh, actually, the, the other day over the weekend, I was talking this to a, a person I know in Los Angeles, and he raised the exact same issue as I've seen raised by at least two other people. One is uh, via Facebook, uh, Tom Donaldson, and one is uh, Professor Shirley Sforney, uh, which is the whole brain drain issue. By allowing uh, immigrant doctors to come to the United States, uh, aren't we in a way, contributing to the depletion of healthcare practitioners in those countries. Uh, why don't we start with Alex on that? And this is a concern that a lot of people have. And the idea is that if the United States makes it possible for foreign medical graduates to come here, then you can imagine this great big drain where all these people from around the world want to come to the U.S. because of the higher wages and higher productivity. And thus, people in poorer countries won't have access to medical care. And what we see is that this really doesn't hold up academically so or, or in the research. So there was a recent uh, working paper published by Paolo Abacar and Caroline Theorides at Amherst College. And what they took a look at was a change in American law in the 2000s that allowed a greater number of Filipino nurses to come to the United States. Now, Philippines, the Philippines has a great medical college system that was established by America when the Philippines was a colony and especially is very good when it comes to nurses. And what they saw in this was that when more Filipino nurses could come to the U.S., that meant that the number of people going to school in the Philippines to study nursing increased even more. And not all of them ended up coming to the United States. So both the supply of Filipino nurses in the Philippines who stayed there and who came to the United States both increased. And the reason why this is, is that because of the greater uh, gains, uh, potential gains from being able to come to the United States as an immigrant, it actually acts as an incentive for people in these countries to gain more of an education, to go through more medical training, to become nurses, and to become higher quality nurses, because the possibility of them being able to leave increases. And what you see a net, a net effect of this is that the human capital stock, that is the stock of people who are very highly trained in both countries increases as a result of this, right? So it's not like there are a fixed pool of nurses. There are not a fixed pool of medical professionals. There are a lot of people who could become doctors, who could become nurses, especially in the developing world, who don't because they don't have that incentive to because their career prospects wouldn't be that great. But all of a sudden, if a good number of them can come to the United States, then the benefits of becoming a doctor, the benefits of studying nursing, the benefits of going into medicine increases, and the effect is a greater supply of healthcare professionals both in these countries and in the United States. So instead of calling it a brain drain, I think we should call it a skill flow. Uh, Paul, you said you wanted to also chime in on this. Yes, I, I, I agree with what Alex said, but I just also wanted to explain there's a difference between a short-term and a long-term solution to a problem. In the short term, given the pandemic, uh, I can understand why it would be uh, inadvisable perhaps to, for the United States to try to encourage every particular expert in any one area to come to the U.S. because that would 
perhaps give the impression that the United States doesn't care about the healthcare systems in other nations. Uh, what we have is a, a worldwide problem and uh, in the very short run, say the next six to 12 months perhaps, uh, maybe we uh, need to be aware of the fact that we are in the short term uh, running down the number of physicians available overseas. But this is a, a long-term solution as well. It's not just something that we need to, have to deal with uh, the COVID problem. It's a long-term solution for the betterment of the health of uh, people in the United States. And if it's not gonna create long-term problems for foreign countries, for the reasons Alex gave, we shouldn't necessarily have to uh, shortchange ourselves uh, once we're, you know, dealing uh, with uh, the pandemic in the rearview mirror. Uh, also, Macbul, you you wanted to add something to that question. So yeah, I I, will, I have a couple of points, and I'll take a little bit of a time on this issue because I appreciate you know the research that Alex quoted, but I I think you know there's research and there's real life. So I'm going to experience real life, you know, I'm going to share my real life experience with you. So there's two aspects to this. So when a foreign graduate comes to the US, there are three steps. First is their training in the residency, their own whatever specialty. Second is licensing. And third is actually finding employment. So what we are doing is that people who are already trained, we are having them go through that again, which I think is redundant and unnecessary. There, there should be a way to filter that the people have been trained appropriately, but they should not have to be forced to go through the whole residency. That is totally redundant. Number two is the licensing. So again, what we are doing is that we're not only you know, having them go through the residency again, we are making it much more difficult for them to get licensing here. Even if those you know, foreign graduates get those, get, go through those two steps, there's also still the, the step of uh, you know finding a job and getting employment. So even if let's say we made the residency easier, we made the licensing easier, they still will have to apply and get a job before they can actually physically move here. So I think what the the main thing we need to do is we need to uh, you know get, get these barriers down. And number two, even if we let's say that in a in a hypothetical world where we said we'll give every foreign graduate the license to practice medicine they still will not be able to come to the US without getting, you know, first securing employment. So it's never going to happen that we're going to deplete the, the local medical systems in all the countries of their, of their you know, medical minds. What we will still, in the, the capacity of the United States is still very limited compared to the number of physicians that are available out there. That's just the practical aspect on the individual side. But I'll tell you, I come from Pakistan. And in Pakistan, the greatest resource for foreign you know, currency, which every country needs a foreign currency reserve, after their, you know, their uh, industrial exports is, is are, the, are the Pakistani expri expatriates who send money back. So economically, most countries actually benefit hugely from their people going overseas. And this global village that we live in even when people migrate, it's not like 100 or 200 years ago when people you know, moved from one country to the other country, they're pretty much severed all their ties. These days, even after migrating to other countries, people still have links back home. And the third thing that I think Alex had a great point, I think actually for graduates, foreign graduates from, like from Pakistan, they come here, they still stay in touch with the local you know, physicians. And actually this helps them you know, improve the medical care back home also. Plus, it incentivizes the other upcoming physicians to to you know up their game so that they can be part of the comp, you know, the pool where they they have the potential to 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 go you know to a different country uh, to not only improve uh, themselves uh, or their families or even their country financially, but also to improve uh, themselves intellectually and 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 professionally. So I think it's a win-win situation for both the U.S. and the countries that these uh, physicians are coming from. 
Uh, and Anne Marie Scheiber asked a question uh, that I got a partial answer to, but I'd like to hear uh, if anybody else wants to chime in on that. She says, can you speak to the impact reform would have on the limited number of residencies that medical students training in the U.S. clamor for? Currently, U.S. medical students compete for these spots with immigrant doctors who are fully trained. I just would like to say they're not compete. Well, they are competing with immigrant doctors who are fully trained. So I think we've all kind of said that why do we have to make them <laughs> go through the training again? Uh, that's you're at, that's a very good point. And I think uh, Matt Bull mentioned that as well. Since they've already been trained, why are we making them compete for a residency slot for something they don't really need, but it's just required by our licensing laws? National... Uh, uh, the National Match Program, uh, Resident Matching Program, in 2019 alone, there were roughly 10% of slots unfilled, and about 10% of slots go unfilled all the time because a part of the problem is that people applying for residency programs don't want to do residencies in certain areas of the country, and so they don't ma match them. The way that things work in this country is you rank in your top 10 choices or top eight, I think it was when I was in my day, by order of preference, it's like a ranked order voting. And then the, the residency programs which you applied rank as well, and then you're matched. Uh, just, just in June, the Texas Medical Association reported that uh, in Texas, uh, medic, there were 1,748 medical school graduates in 2019. A total of 1,987 first-year residency slots were available, more than enough for all graduates. So actually, there's a surplus of residency slots uh, it's just that a lot of them are not attractive to people applying for residencies. But does anyone else have uh, knowledge on that who would like to say something? Uh, Mac Bull, you're, uh, or do you want to say, or Paul? Uh, Paul says he can answer. So let's go with Paul. Well, let me just make two points in this regard. Um, first, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer, not a doctor. But there are certain areas of law that are going to be the same no matter where you go in the United States. Bankruptcy law is federal. So if I were to move from, say, Maine to Hawaii, the bankruptcy law uh, experience that I've gained practicing in Maine is going to be the, of the same use in Hawaii. There's no need to require me to do this all over again. So maybe what we, we don't need to require foreign physicians to go through the entire residency program if we had a problem uh, we might be able to resolve it by addressing it in a different manner uh, by using the Canadian or the EU or the Australian approach. You don't have that. Uh, the second point I want to lay, uh, we have not increased the number of funded residency programs since 1997. Um, that is going to be something that Congress has to consider. Uh, Congress has to put more money into residency programs, as the states do too, because we've seen now that we're unable to respond adequately to a lot of the problems we have, not just the long-term one of making sure we have an adequate number of people uh, who can provide service in all of the different communities in the United States, but also we have to have an adequate number of people in case we have uh, a similar problem uh, to the one we have now with COVID either because of just the natural development of uh, mother nature or because someone outside the United States who wants to do the nation harm has decided to do so. I remember after 9-11, one of the problems people worried about was the reintroduction of smallpox into the uh, medical communities problems that they have to deal with. We have all these needs and we have to meet them and uh, we're gonna have to spend some money to do it and Congress is gonna have to address that problem. Uh, by the way, uh it's not just uh, a, a federal uh, uh, concern. I know Medicare provides much of the funding for residency programs, uh, but so does the VA. And many state legislatures are allocating um, money for residency programs as well. So it, 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 there are plenty of different uh, governmental centers that provide the funding. And of course, I would prefer that it would be provided by the uh, by the educational organizations themselves and the teaching hospitals. Macbo, you also wanted to say something about this. 
Yes, Jeff. So uh, I'll go back to my you know theory of three hurdles. The first hurdle is the residency or the training. The second hurdle is the licensing, and the third hurdle is finding an employment. So what we are saying, you know, and an answer to the last question was that I don't think that the the foreign graduates should be uh, should have to go through the residency program that is designed for local graduates. They should be a, a you know a different pathway for them which will actually you know, take away the competition for local graduates. So now we can say, okay, there'll be competition at the, at the employment level because hopefully the licensing should be the same. But, but you know, what I, call, uh, what I call is something called native bias. It's not only in the US, any country, every society in the world does have a, 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 some level of native bias where those local people are always are first in line. And that's just that's the hard fact of life. So, you know, uh, the foreign graduates, even if they are allowed to bypass the residency and have their own track so they don't have to compete with the local graduates, even if they are, you know, given the same playing field for getting a license, still will have to face that native bias at the employment level because they will never, if you know, uh, have the same opportunity as a local, you know, graduate, and which is fine, which is part and parcel of what every society works with. So this is not a, you know, there is no, I don't think there is any concerns for any foreign graduates coming in and competing with with the local uh, graduates because that is a totally, I think, those, those separate pathways, and foreign graduates will only still be only be able to fill in the needs that the local graduates are not able to fill. I have a question uh, for that. This is this is actually directed at Alex. It's about the Conrad 30 program. Is there a restriction on what country they can come from? These where these folks can come from other than the normal immigration restrictions that the government has put in place. So, for instance, um, medical trainees from um, uh, the countries that have been banned by President Trump for national security reasons enter the United States are not allowed on and on this program. Um, and all of the usual, of course, security, health, uh, criminal uh, uh, restrictions on immigration apply to them as well. Um, it's just like a temporary medical program, uh, 30 per state. Um, and uh, there's no restrictions or special restrictions on where these folks um, uh, can come from uh, to, to, to do this. Now, there, of course, in order to um, practice medicine, you have to be sponsored by the state, usually in cooperation with a medical provider in that state. And they have other regulatory requirements that uh, guide whom they can hire. But the immigration program itself doesn't have any extra barriers in it. I have a question uh, from Shirley Sforney uh, about uh, that, that we pointed out about immigrant physicians being able to serve in underserved areas. Now, of course, in places, in most of the provinces of Canada, they, they usually require you to put in a minimum amount of time in an underserved area when you're granted uh, this license. Um, but is there any evidence in this country that IMGs who are granted licenses uh, stay in, in underserved areas? Uh, Macbul, how about you? I'm a prime example. I, I worked for three years in Berea, Kentucky to get my green card. Uh, so yes, they do. They, it is very difficult once you are in a, uh, uh, you know, once as, as Alex had alluded earlier, people who are in J1 in order not to have to go back, have to go through this waiver, you know, the program where they have to serve in an underserved area. And it used to be three years, but what I not talk to people lately because of all the delays and in and, and, and getting their green cards uh, and everything, most people spend anywhere between five to seven years working in underserved areas because you have to realize that the reason most people want to do that is because they want to get a green card. And nowadays, and this, you know, uh, even if uh, when a foreign graduate applies for a green card, 
the process is so much more difficult because of all the new security, you know, things that there has to be verification from back home, uh, that it is taking much longer for people to then actually get a green card so that they can uh, work openly because while they're working in an undeserved area, they're working on an H1B visa, which only allows them to work in one, you know, with their own sponsor. They cannot just go and find a job anywhere else. But I think the other point that I wanted to go back to uh, was the fact that, that you know, although on paper uh, people are getting visas from all over the country, but I've actually had uh, gone through, I personally had to deal with a lot of experience, you know, with, with even at residency level where, you know, we get uh, 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 medical students from uh, especially Pakistan who get a job, get a slot in a residency, and they go back, and then the local consulate just, uh, you know, uh, refuses to give uh, grant them a J-1 visa even. So they are, th this whole process, is, and, and then what happens is that, let's say you are the, you, if a person, the program director, you know, uh, uh, selects a person uh, to, uh, for a slot in, in, in internal medicine, and this, this uh, candidate goes back, and is not able to get a visa on the day they are starting their their program, they are one you know resident chart. And if that happens, then then that program director is not going to you know even consider somebody from Pakistan ever again because they don't want to be left in that situation. So there are uh, there although on paper uh, it is open, but I think uh, there are a lot of uh, countries where the candidates are having a much harder time getting into both at the residency and then even after that getting get, you know after getting their waivers because of the issues they have with the consulates back home alex so you're an immigration specialist what do you know about uh, this matter of doctors staying in those underserved areas so uh, one of the big things I want to uh, sort of expand on uh, what dr Halapota talked about is the uh, approval for visas. So while there may not be restrictions on a particular country in terms of getting a J-1 visa, what we do see is that they don't get their visas approved. They're, they're from countries that the U.S. government thinks are, say, like national security threats, a source of terrorism, etc. So after 9-11, for instance, there were a lot of sort of de facto restrictions put on place, uh, people from Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and other countries due to the fear of um of terrorism and what we refer to this as is the consular black box so in order to get your visa you often have to go to the con american consulate do a series of interviews in order to get your visa and the officials who interview the migrants and issue the visas eventually um they have the ability to deny you and they don't really have to give uh any kind of reason at all or if they do have to give a reason it's just like a a, a, a sort of one-line note and we call this a black box because these decisions are not reviewable by courts or by other bureaucrats they're not appealable or anything like that so what we definitely see is there are definitely de facto restrictions that are on the books um that that make it more difficult for people from countries that have say uh uh problems with terrorism or other national security issues the U.S. is concerned about that are not restrictions on the books. Um, so those may uh, and, and do show themselves to be de facto restrictions. But when it comes to actual legal restrictions, um, those haven't been put in place until relatively recently under the Trump administration in terms of his migration bans that he's put in place on particular countries. Okay. Um, we're running uh, out of time, so it's time for one more question. And this is something uh, uh, interesting that I was not aware of. Uh, Jacob Rich sends in, have, have any of you heard about the SB23 in Utah, which uh, sought to recognize accreditation by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, which itself recognizes training from other countries? So, uh, I guess what this means is it's an indirect way. It's kind of a, a workaround. If if you're uh, certified by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, um, then you're granted a license in Utah if that bill were to pass. Meanwhile, Canada will give provisional licenses to people coming over from 29 countries. And even in some cases, like I mentioned earlier, 
even if they're not from those 29 countries. So now when they're given the provisional license, they are certified by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Anybody know about that piece of legislation at all? Because it sounds like an interesting concept. No? Uh, actually, yes, Paul is, does. Uh, so let's this hear. This is Paul. Yeah. Yes. I'm not, I can't say I'm familiar with that particular bill, but I know the idea is a very common one, particularly in the United States, where different states, such as Arizona, have decided that they will grant licenses to people who are licensed elsewhere. Uh, what's unique about the Utah one, I suppose, is they're granting it rather than to a, a, someone who's licensed in another state in another nation. But it's a, it's a great idea. And what it does is uh, perhaps uh, encourage other states to consider the same option because it might be a, a relatively easy way to deal with this problem. Well, it looks like we're out of time and uh, we could, this is a fascinating topic. I uh, got lots more questions that unfortunately I didn't have a chance to get to and we can uh, obviously go on for another hour or so. Um, I'd like to thank all of our guests for being here. I'd like to tell everyone that this will be uh, archived. So probably later today, if not definitely within the next 24 hours, you'll be able to view this entire event online at, at the Cato.org website. In addition, for those of you who came in towards the tail end of the documentary video that was running right before we began, that will be a part of this when you view the archive so you can see the video in its entirety. And once again, thank you so much to our, our, our participants and to you out there.